traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, how millennials are giving a boost to ethical investing. We want to invest not just for financial return, but we also want to know at the very least what sort of harm our investments might be doing. But even better, perhaps if we can do some good with it. And a very fishy story from Holland. The accusation is that one of these judges is biasing his scores in favor of herring stands that get their fish from a supplier who he also works for. But first, there are signs that the normally predatory Rupert Murdoch and his media empire might be in retreat. Mr Murdoch's reportedly put a for sale sign on 21st Century Fox's cable channels, such as National Geographic, as well as on its film and TV studios. Disney, Comcast, Horizon and Sony are eyeing up these bits, and Mr Murdoch's stake in the European subscription TV channel Sky might also be up for grabs. Gadi Epstein, our media editor, joins us from New York. Hello, Gadi. Hello, Simon. Um, so firstly, what do you think his motivation? Why has Rupert Murdoch put these assets up for sale? I think it's a, it's a clear sign uh, that they have looked at the landscape with Netflix, Amazon, Disney's dominance at the box office and in franchises, and have made the calculation that it will be very difficult to compete and become a global scale player that can actually go toe to toe with these uh, these giants. And I think that's it's a, probably a smart play by the Murdochs, but it's also I think an admission of failure. That I think they they wanted to be one of those global players, and have been trying for a few years uh, to build scale. And now they've come to the conclusion that they're not going to be one of the winners in the future entertainment landscape. I listed some of the things that he's rumored to be selling. What is he hanging on to? What is the core of the business now as he sees it? Fox News will be the most lucrative piece that remains. It throws off perhaps $1.8 billion in cash this year. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's already the most lucrative single piece in the empire. Fox Business News will remain as well and the main Fox broadcast network in America. This is all basically live content. And it's a big bet on live and on um, viewing that can't be as easily commodified as you know scripted entertainment. You know all the various shows that you watch on on streaming services. What they're betting on is everything else. So why would these other firms want to get into the businesses he's getting out of the Disney's, Comcast, Verizon's, and so on? What, what's what's in it for them? Well, it doesn't make sense for every buyer, uh, and not every piece makes every makes sense for every buyer. But for Disney, um, the TV and film studio and intellectual property make a lot of sense. Fox produces the content that is most watched on Netflix. Um, their TV content, you know, they've got The Simpsons, Family Guy. You know, their movie properties, they have The X-Men, which is a, you know, a Marvel property that could be reunited with the rest of Marvel under Disney. 
and Disney is already Disney is a big enough scale player to uh, to compete to attempt to compete with the likes of Netflix and Amazon in the kind of future over the top streaming world. And Disney's announced its own streaming platform coming in 2019. Uh, for them, uh, bulking up on IP and valuable TV property uh, it makes sense. It's not necessarily uh, a logical purchase for the folks like Comcast and Verizon, but they are uh, known asset accumulators, you know, these, these telecom businesses, as they look for scale themselves. And you saw the AT&T uh, wants to pay a, a, a pretty penny for, for Time Warner. Uh, and that doesn't mean that those deals make sense, but it is something that they've, um, they've been looking to do to acquire assets. So how do you see the overall global or Western world, I suppose, media landscape emerging from all this? You mentioned that Murdoch now, as it were, no longer sees his own business as one of these big global players. Who will be the handful of companies dominating this? Well, certainly uh, Netflix and Amazon. Uh, they're essentially already there. Netflix has about 110 million subscribers globally. Uh, Amazon is not quite at that at scale globally, but they have launched internationally with their video uh, streaming service. Uh, and they have uh, quite a large audience in the U.S. They're both very well positioned, and they are spending a lot of money around the world uh, to build up audience uh, so and content. Disney, I think, is is the next big player to, to come. And I, you know, they've announced their streaming service, as I said, for 2019. Uh, I think they have a very good shot with their uh, existing uh, big franchises. Uh, and if they add Fox's, uh, they have a very good chance of competing uh, at that level. Uh, outside of those, then you're talking about the other big tech companies, you know, Facebook, Google, uh, slash YouTube, and possibly Apple. All of them have uh, the cash and the reach potentially to amass global scale and, and get eyeballs, basically compete for people's attention. Uh, so those are those are basically the big names. And coming back to the Murdoch empire itself, how does this fit in with Rupert Murdoch's own succession planning, if you like? I mean, the man's in his 80s. There's always talk about which of his sons and daughter is in favor. Is, is, can this be seen in that context? My initial thought when I first heard that Fox might sell off uh, some of its assets, it looks so real that Fox actually wants to break up its empire, was that Rupert thinks he's going to live till 105 you know, his mother, I think, lived till 103, uh, and uh, he wants to run this business because Fox News is his baby. The cable networks and the whole kind of global scale play uh, for the entertainment business was something that James uh, Murdoch was supposed to be in charge of. Rupert is a newspaper guy. Uh, he still has News Corp. Um, he's a Fox News guy. This could be his strategy, but I think we're just guessing at this point. It's very hard to tell what's really going to happen in, in the succession plan with the Suns. Uh, from the outside. And you have people briefing, I think, from from all sides of the family. Uh, you know, I've heard from someone yesterday saying, this is all James's idea. I think we can't really put much stock uh, in the gossip quite yet. Um, but we do know that I think Rupert has a, a major voice in this. And I don't think that's surprising. Gadi Epstein, thank you very much for joining us from New York. Thank you. Well, what are your views on the potential sale of parts of 21st Century Fox and the consolidation taking place in the media industry? Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com.
Next, the financial world is all abuzz with new jargon about investments that make an impact on society and the environment. The demand for so-called ESG investments that are rated by environmental, societal and governmental criteria is booming. One factor driving this is generational change. To talk about all this, I'm joined by Sasha Nauter, our finance correspondent. Sasha, in a sense, ESG impact investing is a phenomenon of the millennial generation. Is that right? Well, Simon, it, the phenomenon preceded the millennial generation, but the great hope, and there are signs of this, is that the millennials will, will give the movement, which has been a bit of a niche, the boost that it needs to become more, more mainstream. The main reasons why people in the sector think that millennials will be that important force is because they have very different attitudes. They seem to have very different attitudes to investing um, than their baby boomer parents um, did uh, and it's it's particularly this attitude that you shouldn't see how you invest your money as very separate to say the values you hold with um, the job you do or the money you give to charity boomers see those things as three separate things whereas millennials seem to say no 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 those are all part and parcel of the same and therefore we want to invest not just for financial return but we also want to know at the very least what sort of harm our investments might be doing, but even better, perhaps if we can do some good with it. So the, the impact investing that you were referring to. How much money are we actually talking about? Because after all, isn't it the selfish, greedy, mean baby boomers like me that have all the money, whereas millennials like you are struggling, penniless and uh, don't have two farthings to rub together? <laughs> Well, absolutely. Baby boomers do still have the vast majority um, of wealth, much to the frustration of some millennials. And some of the more traditional uh, money managers indeed say, well, why should we bother to spend our time on millennials? They're, they're penniless. Up to a point that's true, the big wealth transition is still ahead. We'll, we'll need to wait for baby boomers to pass on their wealth. Um, before millennials get hold of that, of course. You are, on, in that, on that last thing, on, on the generational handover, talking about trillions of dollars, I mean, trillions and trillions of dollars that will change hands from this huge baby boomer generation to their millennial children in the next sort of 20, 20 years or so. But even in the shorter term, there's two things that I think are quite interesting. Firstly, the oldest of the, of the millennials um, are starting to hit their peak earning capacity and are also at the age where their where their parents would have started to invest in the stock market now going back to sort of millennials having different ideas of what you do with your money what i haven't mentioned yet is of course these are the the kids that came onto the job market during the financial crisis so they're far more distrusting of the old channels so it'll be very interesting to see even with little savings which habits they start to to, to set in place the last thing is their impact on so-called institutional investors so pension funds to a lesser extent insurers college endowments etc um, again still early days but there is a sense that in those institutions that millennials again will be banging their fists on the table of bit more to say, well, hang on a second, um, what are you doing with my uh, fees or my donations or whatever? How are they being invested? I'd like to be, them to be invested in a different way. Um, so I think in the long run, it will be a lot of money. In the short run, it's more about catching them whilst they set their habits, so to speak. And I think some of the more traditional investors may be in danger of focusing solely on where the money is today, which is with the baby boomers. Another feature of the millennials, of course, is that they are 
tech-savvy, uh, aware of technology, and this is an industry that is being transformed by new technologies. How is that affecting the uh, the impact in the ESG investment world? Yeah, technology is a, is a phenomenal factor as far as I'm concerned. I think the two main ways in which it, it, is, it plays a significant role in what we've been talking about is firstly, it is already and it will continue, I think, to bring the cost down of this way of investing. And secondly, I think it will add transparency, clarity to what is often a very murky process. Transparency is perhaps an overused word, but I think particularly with this topic where we're trying to get a sense of what is happening with my pension fund or what is happening with my savings or I've invested in a very generic mutual fund but I don't really understand whether it's doing harm or whether it's doing good. All of those things again, technology not by itself, technology combined with a vast increasing universe of data on, on everything those things together mean it is becoming easier and easier for everyone but particularly millennials because they're glued to their phones to have a quick peek at what is beneath those types of investments. And again, the thinking is that armed with that kind of information, they will be more vocal and more demanding about what happens with their investments. Sasha Nauta, thank you very much. Thanks. And finally, a fishy story. Herring is a key part of Dutch culture. In Sweden, herring are fermented. In Denmark, they're pickled or cooked. But in the Netherlands, there's only one way to eat herring lightly salted and raw, dipped in minced onion and accompanied by a pickle. However, something is rotten now about the national herring test. Uh, To explain all this, I'm joined by our Europe editor from Amsterdam, Matt Steinglass. Hello, Matt. Hello. So what's the problem with Dutch herrings? The problem is not so much with the herring as with the test. Uh, There is a crucial national herring test carried out each year, sponsored by a local newspaper, and two extremely powerful judges uh, traveled the country sampling the herring at 150 stores and shops. The accusation is that one of these judges is biasing his scores in favor of herring, herring stands that get their fish from a supplier who he also works for. How influential are these gradings? I mean, I, like you, have, have Dutch connections and spend quite a lot of time there. And I must admit, I've never noticed this. When I buy herring from a street stall, I'm not aware of what grade it is. Uh, that's probably because you and I are outsiders. But to actual Dutch people, they, they watch these ratings fairly closely. And this, particularly the top 10 each year seem to be rather influential. The economist who has taken a look at the numbers is a guy named Ben Bullard. And he was initially moved to take a closer look at the ratings because his local fishmonger, who he says is quite respected in the neighborhood, got a zero, which he found completely unjustified, and was very upset by it. Uh, He said it could do real commercial damage to the store. So uh, he went and took a look at the actual underlying criteria, the objective criteria that they used to build up their scores, and found that you couldn't justify the final scores that some of the top herring tents were getting. Uh, based on the sort of objective criteria of fat content, microbiological content, and that sort of thing. So his sense was that there was something fishy going on. So this is quite a big deal. I mean, is the public outraged? Do they, have they lost all faith in herring gradings? Yes. I mean, the Netherlands is a country with a very high measure of public trust, but it's a very small country, and uh, it's uh, rather tightly packed. And the accusation of uh, what they call belongoverstrangling, uh, which means uh, conflict of interest, is one of the worst accusations that you can level in Dutch society. So people are quite on the guard for that. 
And uh, this accusation that there's something wrong with the objectivity of the ratings that the herring tents are getting, it's put a sort of a rotten smell over the whole business, basically. And are there moves to change the system or to reform it, or are herrings going to suffer this ignominy forever? The newspaper that carries out the test is protesting that everything is perfectly clean and that there are legitimate explanations for why some uh, some stores are getting higher ratings and others not. But it seems impossible that they can go ahead without changing things uh, to some extent because the, their reputation for impartiality has been completely gutted. So I imagine they're going to have to do something about it for next year. Despite your guttedness, Matt, thank you very much for explaining it all to us. Matt Steingast, thank you very much. No trouble. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.